0: When it comes to reporting on science, we often hear from journalists and scientists about how a certain piece of research will affect society. But in this series,
1: we wanted to try something different. I find it quite difficult to think about gene editing as just one component of what we do, because we're, we're breeding and we're using all sorts of technologies to amplify or to select from the genome and to select
2: animals. Science is at it's base. A curiosity, like a hunger for knowledge, and a way of bringing like a betterment to the future of us all.
3: It's that balance of how do you make the change so we you're getting the benefit, but you're not putting everything else at risk.
0: We've been to five different groups around the UK and listened as they told us about their hopes and concerns when it comes to rewriting our DNA. And in this second episode of our podcast series, Common Threads, we'll be asking, who holds the power of scientific knowledge? And what role should the public have when it comes to conversations around scientific advancement?
4: As far as the general public, I don't feel that they can contribute when they haven't got the experience or they haven't got the knowledge. It's a bit like if somebody was going into a business you wouldn't go and give an opinion or a view of how to run that business if you have no experience or knowledge in that field.
0: I'm Steve Scott, and this is Common Threads. On, in, your in our first episode on DNA and identity, we gave a quick lesson in DNA, genes and a technology known as CRISPR. As a quick reminder, our genes are made of DNA, which itself is made up of four chemical letters, A, C, G, and T. But with technologies like CRISPR, scientists have the ability to go into that DNA and change those letters. Despite CRISPR being relatively new, for our group in Cumbria, which was made up of members from the farming community, it didn't feel all that revolutionary.
1: Uh, David Black, a local vet, uh, mainly large animal vet but with particular interest in advanced breeding technologies and ruminants. You've got a very agricultural audience today really and I find it quite difficult to think about gene editing as just one component of what we do because we're we're breeding and we're using all sorts of technologies to amplify or to select from the genome and to select animals for the future. So. I think I'll find it quite difficult just to think about gene editing because I just see that as one end of a of a series of technologies that we use and that we're going to have to use to feed the world by 2050. If there's going to be 9 billion people on this planet, we're going to have to feed them and we need much more efficiency.
0: Also in Cumbria was Simon Burrell from an organisation called Involve. He was there to help keep the conversation moving.
1: Can you give us an idea of the other, just how you what else gene editing would fit into? So I'm thinking that every farmer, every livestock breeder has for generations selected animals. And now we've got technologies such as genomics whereby we can actually look at the genome of, of the animals and using um, you know, a genetic key to actually understand those traits. Well, we're only just starting to scratch at that technology uh, within the animal breeding world. So what I'm thinking is that we can now use genomics, select the traits that we want. Uh, It's not a matter of, I've got this gene, I've got blue eyes, I've got that gene, I've got brown eyes. It's very much, well, these set of genes might give us better quality meat or or a more fertile animal or largely healthier animals. We're looking for healthier animals. So we can then start to understand genetic traits. And then by using technologies, we we use quite a lot of IVF in cattle. We're just developing that technique now. IVF, that's short for
0: in vitro fertilisation, which... As David explains, farmers use to enhance
1: their livestock. So we're using IVF in normally fertile animals rather than as an end-stage breeding tool to actually amplify, select the the desirable traits and amplify them. So actually we've got a long way to go in the agricultural field to use those technologies before we start worrying about knocking genes out or, or, or gene editing because there's a lot we can do, massive amount we can do before we start onto that side. So I'm just sort of putting it out there that I find it quite difficult to just think of that one technology in the agricultural
5: field. I'm David, I'm a dairy farmer and we have a small AD plant at Longtown. Well, yeah, the work's been done for us. We're just selecting sires from a, a catalogue that's got genomically tested health traits and certain criteria that are desirable to, to breed off. And that's where we're at with it now. It's quite widely available. Um, from certain companies now. So I suppose the interesting thing with that
0: is... It was really interesting for me to hear how these kinds of genetic approaches to farming are already in use of all and also how they felt CRISPR was just a natural continuation of that. You know, if you know which changes in DNA affect the kind of yield of your product, if you like, mm-hmm. you could then go, well, I want to make sure that my animals, my um, crops have that particular change so that's where the kind of gene editing side of things would come in. But I suppose it's interesting that the industry is already using what we call genomics technologies or the understanding of the field of genomics which is the study of the DNA instructions for different things. It's probably important here to give a little insight into exactly how CRISPR could be used in the agricultural industry. Selective breeding is a farming technique that has been around for thousands of years. Essentially, it's when farmers choose an animal or plant based on a desirable trait or characteristic they have and then select them to breed from, hopefully passing on that trait to their offspring. Fast forward several centuries and the discovery of DNA and genes meant that scientists could now identify the genetic underpinnings of these desirable traits making breeding even more selective and more accurate. Now though, instead of mating two animals or plants and hoping that the desirable traits are passed on, CRISPR could allow scientists to go into the DNA and make sure, and do it cheaper, faster and more effectively than existing techniques. Whether that's creating a crop with higher yield or livestock with increased resistance to disease, the hope is that CRISPR will make the farming industry more efficient and environmentally friendly. But before our session in Cumbria, I had little idea of how much genetic technology was already being used in the industry.
6: So we're just coming to Lone Oscar Farm.
0: So to find out a little more, we spent the day in Cumbria with one that? of the people from this session.
6: Hello. It's Norskirf.
7: Norskirf. Wow. The, the low
6: roundabout they say, Nosker. Low
7: Nosker. Yeah. It's quite a Scottish way of saying I suppose it. so, yeah,
6: yeah, yeah. Well, Ian Powley, I'm a regional branch manager for Cars Billington Agriculture. We supply all the needs for the farmers from feed, tractors, fertiliser, animal health products, fuel, you name it. Uh, I've worked there for over 30 years. I'm from a farming background, but my parents weren't farmers. Uh, Uncles and aunts were farmers and that's how I got the farming bug. When I left school, all I wanted to do was to be a farmer uh, and I started work on farms. And then, well, fate, whatever, uh, I got into Cars Billington and um, I've, I've loved it ever since. Also very fortunate in that I'm able to carry out my passion of farming, and, um, I suppose, vicariously through my son. Um, my son's on a farm near Armthwaite in Cumbria, beef and sheep farm, and I spend a lot of time, my wife and I spend a lot of time there with him, helping him get it started. It's like a valley of its own,
7: isn't
6: it? So who's that? That's yeah. all I was. That's um, the neighbours, there's nothing to do with the farm. So these are all
7: yours?
6: Those, all our land and there's real sheep yeah i can remember um, i would be about four and my uncle made me a wooden barrow so that when he was going around the byre with a barrow full of silage giving the cows the silage i was able to follow with a tiny little barrow behind and throw some silage in and i loved the fact that my hands and everything stunk of silage and i would go in the house and show my mother the smell of it. Let her smell my hands with the silage on. I think that's my first memory. Yeah, I think we'd be better putting wellies on, wouldn't we? Yeah, I can you know, put stick my them bit on. Bit yeah, yeah. Uh, well, what size feet have you got? Eleven. There's a bit of a misconception that we all yeah. walk about with a dog and a it stick and a bit of straw in our mouth. But but I think we we are working on that and through things like country file and through. The press and what have you, I think it's getting through that there is, it, it is much more. There's much more science to it. There's much more management needed. It, it, it is a it's a amazing industry with all sorts of technology technological advances at the moment, and it's a brilliant industry to be in. Sadly, nobody makes a fortune out of it, and it's very difficult to to for these farms to make a living. But we get by.
0: We'll come back to Ian. Back in our Cumbria session, David C wanted to know a little more about how CRISPR might work for him.
5: The editing. Say if we gene-edited a bull for a selected trait we wanted, and we bred off that bull, is that edited gene passed on to its offspring, or is it just that animal that's had its genes edited?
0: So it depends how you do it. So if you were to um, do the gene editing in... The kind of earliest stage of the embryo and then you know let that embryo develop into an animal that's born and then that animal breeds with it will pass on to the next generation so you're making a change that will be passed from one generation to the next potentially.
5: So what we're doing now is a more mm. natural processes we're finding the bulls have the characteristics we want mm. and we're just ignoring the other ones so we don't breed off them which is a more natural way of getting to the same stage, you know. But you can't do that with humans, obviously, but... Uh... <laughs> There's no catalogue for babies yet.
0: <clears throat> this distinction is between what scientists call somatic and germline editing. Germline editing is when the changes are made to sperm, eggs or the early embryo. Edit them and the changes affect all the cells in the grown individual including their own sperm or eggs. This means they could pass the changes on to their offspring. Somatic is any other tissue, so the changes are local. They don't affect the whole individual. And more importantly, they are not passed on to future generations. Two beautiful little Chinese girls named Lulu and Lala came crying into the world as healthy as any other babies a few weeks ago. This is why the announcement of a controversial and still unpublished experiment from late 2018 was so relevant. And in fact, it was something we brought up in all of our sessions. A few days later, before returning Lulu and Lana to Greece, Wong, we checked how the gene
2: surgery went. I you may
0: have heard about it. A researcher called Dr. Herjen Quai, ...attempted to use CRISPR to edit two embryos that were born as twin girls... ...something he claimed would provide increased resistance to infection by HIV. Many in the field were outraged by the announcement at the time... ...arguing that we just don't know enough about the risks. A year later, a Chinese court sentenced the scientist... ...to three years in prison for violating medical regulations... Saying that her had, quote, crossed the bottom line of ethics in scientific research. So he didn't follow the due process usually done in science. Instead, he did all of this largely in isolation, from other scientists, lawmakers, and of course, the public. What goes on behind closed doors, away from public eyes, is something that Ian Powley is concerned about in the farming industry, too.
6: Good morning. morning.
0: You all
1: right? Very well, thank you.
6: What, are you you limping? Nice, nice to meet you, mate. This is Matt. This is Max. Nice but, to see you, Max. How kind you kind of nice and easy, isn't it? There's a saying that um, a few generations ago, everybody had an uncle who was a farmer, or, or a, you know, a member of their extended family was was from a farming background or involved in farming. Whereas now, that's very much not the case. Um, and it, it's becoming a, a tighter and tighter group who are in farming. So they have moved a lot further away than what they used to be. never, <laughs> never. Well, there's fewer farmers. Um, farms have got bigger and they've got fewer. The, the big ones have got bigger and the smaller ones have got less. So there's less people involved in farming. Obviously they've got less relatives and, you know, so people aren't just going... Connected.
1: Do you ever do it by hand? No, well, not if we can help it. Um, modern dairy cattle give quite a lot of milk. It's all right if they're giving two pints, but if they're giving 50 litres, it can take a while. So I'm Matt Bagley, I'm Head of Farms for Asken, Bryan and Newton Rig Colleges. So, we're in the main dairy cow building, where the cows spend most of their time. The cows in front of you are um, in one group, We don't have separate groups for low and high yielders in here. They're all treated the same. Uh, You'll see these cows are wearing pedometers on their right front leg and that's an auto-ID that tells us which cow is which and it also records in the parlour information about that cow.
6: Most farmers, we love our animals. We know where they're going eventually but we see it as our role to make sure that they have as good a life While they're here, as they can have, we look after them as well as we can do. Um, And we as an industry, I think we're getting better at it, but we've got to tell them and invite them onto the farms, let let them see what happens. So we'll
1: search for cow 872, if she's got a transponder.
6: It's not easy to, to go and speak to strangers and tell them all about yourself and a lot of farmers, uh, they don't mix with a lot of people. They've got pretty isolated lives, uh, and they're not good at talking to others. Um, And and that maybe is a problem that we have in our industry. We've got to develop some more interrelational skills so that we can talk to the public, invite them onto our farms, let them know what we're doing, um, and then hopefully they'll support us.
0: Both Ian and Matt raise concerns about a lack of public understanding or even heightened suspicion if there is isn't open dialogue between the farming industry and the public. But with something as important as gene editing, should decisions involve all corners of society, including the public? It's something we put to our group in Cumbria.
3: Hello, uh, I'm Kirsty. Um, I'm a dairy farmer's daughter, and still actively involved with the farm at home, as well as working for Kaz Burlington, working on farms across West Cumbria, um, focusing on nutrition, animal health, and various other livestock and crop issues. The general public don't have enough understanding on the science. That it's very complex science, and very on how things work and what have you, and I think unless you have full understanding you can't make a proper judgement on something.
1: You're all members of the public, as indeed am I, I'm not not in government, so does that mean that you think that you shouldn't have a say in this technology? I don't
5: think I'm qualified to have a say in this technology, no, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want want to, actually I'd rather people that knew the ins and outs of it were making that decision for me.
2: I think they should play a role, yeah, of course. I mean, we we live in a democracy.
5: That's
0: Lewis, who was one of our young people in Manchester.
2: But um, I think the public as a whole can often very easily be mislaid. If you look at, I'm going to use like a very inflammatory one right now, which is Brexit, we saw how quickly... Um, money and power came into it in misdirecting people, in misfeeding people information, which was completely false, and um, how social media and the internet was used to completely uh, misweigh people on the choices that they made. Um, it's very easy to, to give that information and poorly educate people. If we had a better educated population, if people, they had time to go and do that research, and then I think it'd be great, and yes, people can get involved, but if the only information people have is what you see on a newspaper headline or what you see on Facebook, then I think that's a really difficult part to have in in a conversation like this.
6: I suppose one of the things that makes us sceptical about public opinion is that we hear time and again that the public want food raised in an ethical way they want free range hens they want cows that live on grass they want all this sort of thing yet when they turn up in the supermarket and they've got the choice between organic eggs at x price and and you know factory laid eggs that off they go with the cheaper option every time and it's it's heartbreaking to us because we're trying to do the job right and yet we get this bad public opinion so that. To trust the public to make decisions on things of this magnitude
5: would be a bit iffy. What they say and what they do, it is all. can be two different things.
0: Our group in Cumbria was a bit sceptical about the public being able to make big decisions about a complex scientific subject. They told us they would rather turn to experts instead. But what about being an expert by experience? our chat support group for parents of children with additional needs had loads of this.
3: OK, so I'm a parent uh, to two children, uh, who are four and 6 Um also a carer at home. Um, I run a small support group with a Facebook page, um, and that keeps me really busy.
4: And that's about it. Oh. Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Michelle, yeah. I'm also Michelle and I've got two children, Um, my son's 12, my daughter's 7 and I'm a teaching assistant as well and I also run a children's contact centre. As far as the general public, I don't feel that they can contribute when they haven't got the experience or they haven't got the knowledge. It's a bit like if somebody was um, going into a business. You wouldn't go and give an opinion or a view of how to run that business if you have no experience or knowledge in that field. So it's the same principle. So it can really only be anybody who has knowledge or experience or some contribution that will be able to make a, a decision in how that best suits all of those patients. I think as
3: long as you've got balance, you know. So the scientist is doing the science part of the job. Great, but do do you think as well? particularly with some medical professionals that I've met. Sorry to lump everyone in together, but um, sometimes some people look at my son as a list of symptoms. Other times they look at my son as who he is, which is quite tricky. Although scientists would be coming from a log- you know scientific background, it doesn't hurt to always have the bigger picture.
7: What do you think can be done to sort of try and close that divide between, say, the agricultural sector and and the public?
6: Well, it's people like you that can do that. The journalists, the media, Countryfile does a good job. Um, There's there's lots more examples of Farming programs on the television that are that, uh, educating, for, I don't like that word, but they are educating the public as to what we get up to, and, and it's all in a, it's in a good cause and doing a good job of it. And you fellows with the newspapers, you know, you, you can do the same thing. And it's up to us to support you to do that. We've all got to work together uh, to make our industry profitable and to attract people buy things from us and to to attract people to come and work in our industry because we're desperate for staff as well.
7: So you think the farmers themselves, people within the agricultural sector, should play a role?
6: Yeah, yeah, of course we should, yeah.
7: More than they're doing at the moment?
6: Probably, yeah, yeah. Some do. Uh, There's a farm open day in June where... A lot of farms open their doors, invite the public in to see what they're up to. Um, but I always feel it's a shame that there's a lot of that goes on in Cumbria, but there's not that many public in Cumbria. It should be happening in London and Manchester, Birmingham, all them places. And uh, I know people near those cities do try, but wherever they are, it's going to be a long distance, isn't it? Maybe we should take the farms into the middle of the town and let, let people see it there. Put
1: them all on the back of a truck. We've, we've
6: done that. We've done that. We've taken sheep into the town centre, Sheared sheep in the town centre and, you know, given people the message of what we're up to.
0: But we need to do more of it. In the same way, scientists could certainly do more to engage with the public. But it can be difficult because science is specialised and complicated meaning that those outside of it may not have the knowledge or expertise to understand. Academic journals, where much of this information can be found, can be hard to find and follow for some people. And on top of all of this, science can be a gradual process. Take CRISPR-Cas9. It was 1993 when a researcher in Spain first discovered the CRISPR part, which is the molecular guide. Cas9, which is the bit that does the cutting, would come later, in 2005. But it wasn't until 2013 that CRISPR-Cas9 was used to edit the genome of a multicellular organism. Since then, huge amounts of research have shown the potential applications of CRISPR-Cas9. These include treatments for HIV, cancer and disorders like muscular dystrophy. But also creating mosquitoes that cannot spread the malaria parasite and algae that churn out biofuels. The majority of this is heavily regulated and is still taking place in the lab, meaning it can remain largely unknown to the public. As well as Cumbria, we visited Birmingham for a session with members of the local black African and Caribbean community. Some of them had friends or family with a genetic condition, Called sickle cell anemia. We'll hear more about that in episode three.
8: Hi, my name is Ian. I'm a PhD researcher at Birmingham City University and a curator of galleries and cinema. We are a, 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 a small section of of the community, and I think that something like this, and we, especially when we're talking about sickle cell. Whereby, for a lot of black people, I think, you know, black people of the diaspora in the UK and and around the world are ignorant of it. We don't all know the facts about sickle cell because it doesn't affect us all. So we don't come with that informed position. So I think what's important is that we are consulted, but also we take part in that wider conversation, that we are informed as to what the potential effects of such research could have for our communities going forward before any final decisions are are made so that we come from an informed position.
7: And I'm going to say to sort of add to that as well, I think that also involving the, the wider public, the global community in this discussion, is also about giving people the opportunity to understand what research is. Hi, I'm Nicole. I'm a lecturer. I hold a PhD in um, applied health research. Um, in addition to being a mum, I've got three young children. I also volunteer with the community organisation. So, um, I don't know, we've got an active researcher here but if we weren't here, the only researchers we might see give like a little soundbite on BBC News at 10 o'clock but you don't hear about um, the pilot trials, you don't hear about all the paperwork, you don't hear about all the ethics or the ethical approval, or the things you've got to go through just to get through the first hurdle. So um, when maybe us as a as a nation or as as a global, everybody, when we don't know the procedures and we don't understand the the way that science is constructed, you can get rogue scientists, whether they be scientists in China or that guy who published that MMR um, paper all those years ago that has real tangible impact on the way that we live our lives in our society, I think. So we all need that information, I think. But then sometimes it feels like scientists just talk to themselves and when they try and talk to other people, or other communities, they talk with the same language or with a couple of strained phrases. But really, have you really tried to, to meet people where they're at? And I'm, I'm not trying to make it a personal thing like particular scientists have to do this, but science as a discipline remains so detached but everything is science, everything is physics, everything is biology, and it should be interesting. People should want to know, why is your drink fizzy? Um, Why does this make people sick? Why does that happen? Why does that happen? Just the fact that we talk so much about recycling and we talk about pollution, that's science. So I think maybe the way that science is presented puts people off, just like, I don't know, some people say they don't do maths. But if you shortchange them, then no, you know what I mean? They're so no they know maths. So it's the way that we package things, I think. It needs to be packaged and sold better. So, yeah.
2: hmm? I think a lot of people that I know, they don't engage with science because when they were in secondary school, they were taught in a very strict, um, like set, roted way.
0: That's Lewis again from our Manchester session.
2: And so they view science as this very boring thing and they view it as this like difficult thing when I don't think it needs to be science is at it's base a curiosity like a hunger for knowledge and a way of bringing like a betterment to the future of us all. And I think for a lot of people because of negative uh, interactions with science in the past they still have that in their head and they just don't don't want to engage because it's been difficult in the past
5: And sometimes as well with the, when you say newspaper it puts people off because not everyone's got that level of english where they can process everything that's in that paper and they and they don't understand all the words and it's not that they just don't have that same understanding of the english language as what a lot of people do have dylan was also in our session in manchester meaning that even though they are your audience it's completely ineffective because they don't understand the language and it's maybe for people who've not got that same same level of education with the English language because obviously when you're aiming at an audience everyone needs to be able to understand it and I don't think that everyone does understand it just simply because the English is too complicated and some of the words in it they can't understand and they don't know the definitions to so it needs to probably be broken down into smaller bits in a way that they can understand it just as well as, say, someone who reads the paper every day could understand it.
0: Like Dylan says, the language used is so important to make science accessible and involve people in making decisions. It's not about dumbing the science down, but using language that enables everyone to discuss it together. Science communicators, journalists, scientists, and the public, we've all got to work together because this conversation about gene editing is going to be one of the most important we've ever had to face. And it needs to be just that, a conversation. Breaking down these walls between science and the public isn't going to be easy. And in our third and final episode of Common Threads, we'll look at one of the reasons why, trust.
8: If you don't know your history, then that's what I would say you have to know your history before you can make up your mind to do things like that that's serious gene genetic that is a serious stuff
0: Common Threads was presented by me Steve Scott it was produced by Max Sanderson with original music and mixing by Pascal Wise executive producers were Shanida Scotland and Catherine Godfrey our commissioning editor is Lindsay Porton, and our editorial consultant is Alok Jha. Special thanks also to Matt Bagley and Asken Bryan and Newton-Rigg Colleges. If you want to find out more about Reform Radio, head over to reformradio.co.uk. We would like to say a massive thanks to everyone who attended our sessions as well as our local coordinators, Eloise from iGEM, Nick in Cumbria, Anita in Birmingham, Bella in Manchester and Angela in Hertfordshire. Thanks also to Simon, Dom and Lizzie at Involve, as well as Emily Glazier, who helped us coordinate the groups. We would love to hear what you think about gene editing, as well as any feedback you have on the series. Send us an email to podcasts at theguardian.com. This series is supported by The Wellcome Trust. To find out more about the project, head over to theguardian.com.